0: The views expressed on this program are not necessarily the views of the station. Content is for educational purposes only. Consult a financial advisor or conduct your own due diligence if investing. The show was pre-recorded earlier this week. The Everyday Wealth radio show and podcast are produced and created by Edelman Financial Engines and hosted by Gene Chatsky and Soledad O'Brien. Ms. Chatsky and Ms. O'Brien are not employees or clients of the firm. They receive fixed cash compensation for acting as hosts in related activities and therefore have an incentive to endorse Edelman Financial Engines and its planners. For additional information, please see everydaywealth.com. The 2022 Top 100 Independent Advisory Firm ranking issued by Barron's is qualitative and Quantitative, including assets managed, revenue generated, regulatory records, staffing levels and diversity, technology spending, and succession planning. Firms elect to participate but do not pay to be included in the ranking. Compensation is paid for use and distribution of rating. Awarded September 2022, based on data within a 12-month period. Investor experience and returns are not considered. Solaad O'Brien and Gene Chatsky will return next week with Edelman Financial Engines Wealth Planner Andy Smith for a new show. Today we're rebroadcasting an earlier show. At the intersection of life and money, this is Edelman Financial Engines' Everyday Wealth with award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien, personal finance expert Gene Chatsky, and Edelman Financial Engines' Wealth Planner, Isabel Barrow. Edelman Financial Engines has been ranked by Barron's as the number one investment advisor in the country. Now, here's Gene Chatsky, Soledad O'Brien, and Isabel Barrow.
1: So every day... Every day you make financial decisions that can impact your future. When do you buy something? When do you wait? When do you travel or put it off for another year? When do you sell an investment? And when do you take that money that you've got sitting on the sidelines and put it to work? And while many times the ripple effects of these sorts of decisions, they can be small or even unnoticeable. There are those times in your life when it seems like these decisions have much greater weight. Right before retirement, that one to two years before, or even just the few months before, that is one of those times. That is a biggie. When the decisions that you need to make that can cost you tens of thousands of dollars or more if you do nothing or make the wrong decisions weigh the most heavily. Hi, I'm Jean Chatsky. I'm Isabel Barrow. And you are listening to Edelman Financial Engine's Everyday Wealth. Soledad's out this week. She'll be back with us again next week. But today, Isabel and I, we're going to walk through some of those big decisions that you need to think about leading up to retirement. Maybe you're weighing whether or not you want a mortgage in retirement or whether you want to pay it off early. I know
2: I've thought about that a lot. I get that all the time, Jean. I think that's one of the things that people think is the right thing to do when they're moving into retirement. You know, they want to be debt-free. They have it set in their mind that if they're a responsible, financially sound person, they need to do that. So why do you think that is? I think there's a lot of reasons. I mean, it could have been how you were raised. Um, you know, I mean, in my family, my dad never had debt. You know, he, he bought something, he bought it in cash. Um, so it could have been how you were raised, but it, it could also just be that it's something tangible and it gives you peace of mind to know that no matter what happens to me, I have this house to live in. And I think for many, that's really the the primary thing is that the, it's peace of mind. It's that sleep at night factor. They don't so- want to have a mortgage and not have income coming in in retirement. I get this,
1: right? And I have felt this way for a really long time because I won't be able to control my income in quite the same way that I'm able to control it now. And to me, that feels that feels kind of risky. Look, I've, I'm a saver. You you know that about me by now. I've got money saved. I've got money put away. I've got investments. I will have income coming in, but... Not being able to generate more income if I wanted to, that makes me feel a little bit insecure. And I I know that's an emotional reaction and not necessarily a math-based reaction. But when when I reach into my gut, that's sort of
2: where I sit. I totally understand the emotional side of it. Everyone has their own set of risks that they, as an individual, are, are comfortable with. And some people are just not ever going to feel comfortable having a mortgage in retirement. And and that's okay. You know, it's not always the math that drives the decision like that. But But to be fair, since I'm here to give you advice on how the math is actually better for you or how the math works, let's talk about it. Because it's okay. my job as a wealth planner to protect your plan and make it as efficient and as effective as possible. And sometimes that means helping you to get comfortable with something that you previously weren't comfortable with or that you thought was a risk you couldn't bear once you understand that financially it might be better for your plan. And that could ultimately lead to more comfort overall, more comfort with having the mortgage just because you understand how it fits into your overall plan better. So let's do the math, right? I mean, I I know that
1: rationally, the thing to do is actually to probably keep a mortgage and to invest the money because I'll do better with it. But explain it to me in a way that'll make me more comfortable with that.
2: Okay, well, let's just start with understanding that your plan is built around your goals. So as an individual, you have to think about what are the things that are most important to me? Is it retirement? Is it keeping my spending habits the same? Is it having the same quality of life? you know, in many, many cases, it's travel, it's spending time with kids, grandkids, you know, spending money on them, perhaps. Um, So as financial planners, the first thing that we're going to do is build a plan, taking all of those goals into account. And then we take a look at what you own, what you owe on those things, what are your income and expenses. And if you've arbitrarily decided, and maybe it's not arbitrary, again, maybe it's based on just this sense of, uh, this is the right thing to do, but you've decided to pay off your mortgage and it makes sense because it'll make you feel better. Um, you heard it was the right thing to do from a family member. Really stop and consider what your alternatives are. Would that money otherwise be, for example, sitting in a bank account that you've been saving up to use to pay it off? And is that bank paying you nothing? You know, one could argue that paying off the mortgage makes sense mathematically for someone like that because your alternative is just sitting in the bank making nothing. Why? pay interest when you have the money sitting there just for this purpose. But let's now say you have $100,000 left on your mortgage. You want to pull it out of your invested portfolio to pay it off. So Mm -hmm. in this case, you're not pulling it out of the bank. You're pulling it out of your investments. What goal now is that going to impact? And does that impact your net worth overall? Because on one hand, you have no loan, but on the other hand, you now have a lot less money. So does reducing that money growing for you over the long term increase now your risk of of outliving your money because you have less in that pot to draw off of in retirement? Does it increase the age that you're able to retire? Um, You know, maybe it's something smaller. Maybe it's just that it's pulling from your travel pot. And now you've got this big asset in the home, but you can't do things that you want to do in retirement, like travel um, or retire at a certain age. What if the money is not money that's sitting
1: in your portfolio, right? Like what if the money is is either sitting in the bank or you are filling up the buckets in your portfolio already and you're essentially saying, okay, I've got this additional chunk of money. I could just double up on my payments or I could put extra money to work, but I'm already going to reach my goals. So great
2: question. Let's say your mortgage is $2,000 a month. And instead of making that regular payment of $2,000 a month, you decide you're going to double it up. So now you're paying $4,000 a month for the five years preceding retirement. And you do this by decreasing what you are putting into other places, like your investment account, your savings, your 401k. So now you've paid an extra $2,000 a month for five years. So doing the quick math, that's $120,000. Now, if you invest... That same $2,000 a month, right? This $120,000 pot over five years. If you invest that with compounding and let's assume a 7% rate of return over that five years on average. That's $140,000 in the market over that same amount of time. Just by instead of taking that $2,000 a month and putting it toward the mortgage, you're putting it into an investment pot, you have $20,000 more. So now you have the choice, have $140,000 or have the $120,000 paid off earlier on the loan. So that's why the math can make sense here. It's just a very basic equation of what's the delta between what you're earning and what you're paying. What's the delta? I love
1: it when you talk economics to me. We have been talking about whether or not it makes more sense to pay off your mortgage before you retire or not. And Isabel's been walking us through the math on when it may be better. But math aside, there are other downsides too. When we're talking about the downsides of of paying off your mortgage, the other biggie I think is that you lose access in some way to your money. I mean, we we all know we can get a mortgage in retirement, but there are different factors at work. And I think that's that's something that I think about. That's a
2: really, really big one. I had a a client actually yesterday that I met with um, whose father was in his 80s and owned a condo. And he was starting to run low in his investment pot. So He decided that the best option for him was because he had a paid off condo was to get a reverse mortgage in order Mm -hmm. to get access to those funds and not even because he needed it for a specific purpose. I think his daughter told me it was, you know, maybe a little bit of upgrades to the kitchen or something, but he took out only a $30,000 reverse mortgage against his home and, um, had an enormous amount of hopes he had to jump through on a regular basis in order to maintain this, which he didn't really know what he was getting into, but he passed away. And nobody in the family knew that he had this reverse mortgage. And a little known fact about this reverse mortgage is that he only have a six-month window after the passing of the the person who took out the loan to get that thing paid off. Now, the daughters and the family members who don't even know about this reverse mortgage are trying to sell the house. But in the meantime, one of the daughters passes away. So now everything has... I know. Now everything has to be reprobated and they pass the six-month window. And when they finally go to closing to sell this place... It's in foreclosure. All because this gentleman thought he was doing the right thing. He thought he was getting access to cash. He was protecting his plan. But because he didn't have access to the equity in his home, it was his only his only way to get access to that three or four hundred thousand dollars that he was sitting on in the form of his condo. And he didn't want to move. He didn't want to sell. So he felt like it was the only thing he could do. And if instead he didn't have that condo paid off, but instead he had a mortgage on it. He might have had more assets in the bank that he could have used to access to do the little renovations or just to give him more peace of mind over time that he wasn't going to outlive his money.
1: That's a really scary situation.
2: Yeah. And it was it was very emotional. It was a lot of days and weeks of anxiety, of stress, of red tape, of fees, and all sorts of things that you really don't want to have to go through. And you certainly don't want your heirs to have to go through.
1: And if you're listening, talk to your kids. And if you're a kid, talk to your parents. If you kid. If you're a fifty year old kid, talk to your parents so that everybody
2: knows what's going on. absolutely. I think that for most of us, what we're looking at is having all of these different pots of money that we're saving toward every month. And if you're saving enough for something like retirement, travel, you know, inheritance for your children or grandchildren, now you can think about what are my other goals? And perhaps you are putting money towards this fourth goal or fifth goal of having your mortgage paid off in retirement. And again, if that's a goal of yours, if that's something that emotionally you feel is, is going to be far more satisfying and far more productive in your life than keeping it in an invested pot or more into your inheritance pot, et cetera, then that's fine. You know, I don't have any problem with that. I think that there are people for whom that is now a priority. But the reality is, is that mathematically speaking, it is still going to benefit you to have the mortgage. A mortgage is cheap money, even in today's interest rate environment. And if you don't feel comfortable talking to your family about it, or if you don't feel like you know enough about it to really understand all of the implications, then talk to your advisor, because that's ultimately what we're here to do, is to help you understand what are the pros and the cons of all of these different options I have. If you don't have an advisor, then you can certainly reach out to us. We would love to hear from you and talk about what those impacts might be. We're at 833-PLAN-EFE, or you can visit us at plan planefe.org. Isabel Barrow,
1: a wealth planner from Edelman Financial Engines, and I have been talking about both the emotional side of wanting to pay off your mortgage before retirement as well as the math and why for many the math would suggest it may be better to not. Isabel, I I have to think that one of the ways this would need to work is that I would have to communicate early that this is one of my top financial goals and
2: make it a part of my overall plan. I think that for most of us, what we're looking at is um, having all of these different pots of money that we're saving toward every month. And if you're saving enough for something like retirement, Travel, you know, uh, inheritance for your children or grandchildren. Now you can think about what are my other goals, and perhaps you are putting money towards this fourth goal or fifth goal of having your mortgage paid off in retirement. And again, if that's a goal of yours, if that's something that emotionally you feel is is going to be far more satisfying and far more productive in your life, then keeping it in, in uh, you know an invested pot or more into your inheritance pot, et cetera, then that's fine. You know I, I don't have any problem with that. Um, I think that there are there are people for whom that is now a priority. But the reality is is that mathematically speaking, it is still going to benefit you to have the mortgage. A mortgage is cheap money, even in today's interest rate environment.
1: Like so many of you these days, I'm reading the headlines, and the headlines have been focused on mortgage rates, which are climbing, right? They have recently gone above 7%. This is a big jump from the 3% mortgage rates that we experienced not just last year, but for a good part of the last decade. Isabel, does that change the math?
2: It does change the math, and I think as interest rates continue to creep up, assuming they do, the math is going to get harder and harder to to figure um, for someone who's getting a new place. And I think that's what we all have to remember is that the interest rates going up only affect us if we have a new mortgage that we're trying to buy, or if we have a uh, an arm, for example, an adjustable rate, uh, or a home equity line of credit that might be um, having a interest rate going up a couple times a year. But if you have a an, an existing mortgage, now you're looking at having those 2-3% interest rates. So why are you hurrying up to get that paid off when if you have to go buy a new place or you have to go get a new loan because you realize that paying off the mortgage was maybe not in the best interest of your long-term plan, now you're applying for a new loan at 6, 7, I don't know, higher. My first mortgage was, I don't know, 8 something. Mm-hmm. So in the scheme of things, right, It's there. the mortgage interest rates are higher and it feels scary because of that if you're a new buyer, but but really relative to average, we're still in a pretty low interest rate environment. It just doesn't feel that way because of our recency bias of what we've been through over the last 10 years in a really low rate environment.
1: When you put it that way, it's a really, really good point because We're so used to thinking of loans, of all loans, like they are balance transfer credit cards, right? You get that credit card with a 0% interest rate and you figure, okay, I have to rush to pay off all that credit card debt before the teaser rate expires. Otherwise, I'm going to lose the opportunity. But This opportunity, you locked into a 30 year mortgage or even a 15 year mortgage at this very low rate. You can stretch it out and you can take advantage of this cheap money for a very long time.
2: Absolutely. And let me just point out another, you know, another idea as well is. The interest rates may be high in the near term. So if you're going to get out a loan and you're at six and a half percent and you're like, oh, the next 30 years is really going to stink at six and a half percent. Well, guess what? Over the next 30 years, the interest rates might come down again and you can just refinance and start the whole process over again. It's a lot harder to refinance when you're retired than it is when you're still working. So, you know, the idea of getting out of the loan and then going and refinancing later or getting access to your equity later, it's a lot harder when you don't have that income coming in from work. So be really, really careful here. You absolutely have to talk to your advisor before making a decision about refinance, before you make a decision about buying a new home or paying paying off your mortgage early, there are just so many things to think about that you may not have considered. It is
1: complicated, Isabel. I mean, and that's why when I've had these discussions, I've had them with my financial advisor, right? I, I These are the kinds of things that I talk through with my financial advisor on a regular basis. If you're not happy with the person that you're working with right now, Pick up the phone and talk to Isabel or talk to one of her colleagues. Call 833-PLAN-EFE or visit planefe.com. When we come back, we're going to talk about the other goals of your retirement plan. More and more people are looking at travel as one of those things that they are just dying to do in retirement. If that's you, stay with us. We're going to walk through how you can consider the factors that you need to think about in order to afford all of those bucket list dreams. I'm Jean Chatsky again, here with Isabel Barrow. You're listening to Edelman Financial Engines' Everyday Wealth. Stay with us.
0: With volatile markets and talk of recession, you may be wondering what to do next. We can help. At Edelman Financial Engines, you'll find experienced wealth planners who can help you uncover potential opportunities and avoid costly mistakes. Call 833-PLAN-EFE or visit planefe.com to connect with a wealth planner. That's 833-PLAN-EFE or planefe.com.
1: By the year 2025, according to the folks at Visa, the number of international trips that will be taken by people who are over the age of 65 they're going to double. I, I think that's amazing news because we all have this vision of retirement and it includes dreams of those trips that we just don't have time to take during those years that we're working. The three-week trip to Australia or Asia or Africa, in my case, the 21-day cruise. We've been talking about those big decisions that people are facing right before they retire, right at retirement. For a lot of pre-retirees and retirees, travel is maybe the highest thing on the list. But like so many things, taking extended travel during retirement, it requires a lot of planning. And I'm not talking about booking airlines and
2: hotels, Isabel. That is also challenging. Every time I plan a trip, I you know, just the stress around booking it and figuring out where I'm going to stay and getting the flights. I want a direct flight, etc. I mean, it's a lot of planning that goes into just a long weekend, you know. But but I do think that for many people, the idea of getting into retirement, like one of the most exciting things they think about, is. I'm going to get to go on all the travel, do all the trips that I was never able to do before. And, you know, I contend that you should think about retirement and your travel and your day and, and kind of what you're going to do really specifically, just in the same way that you think about the type of house that you want. What are all the amenities? You know, what what types of trips are you going to go on? Is it a three-week trip to Africa, you know, to go on a safari? Or are you really getting in the RV and, and heading out on the road? Are you an economical traveler? Are you, a, you know, are you a big spender? Well, we talked about RVs on this show just a couple
1: of weeks ago about RVing in retirement. It actually was in the podcast. Today, I want to really dig into what you need to consider when it comes to some of those bigger trips in retirement. I mean, one of the things that I think about is, is this a one and done or is this an every year thing? And if it is an every year thing, are we going to travel by train? Are we going to Airbnb for a month? Are we going to cruise? So many retirees love cruising. And it shows up in the numbers. Uh, A third of the people, and there were about 29 million of them who took cruises in the year before the pandemic hit, were 60 or older and not just seven-day cruises. They get on that boat and they stay for a month. Not appealing to me. I have to say, I I think that the tiny little stateroom is not so much my speed, but but I get it. If you want to see the world, this is a a fantastic way, but it's really expensive. If you get on that Royal Caribbean World Cruise, which makes 150 stops across seven continents, it's going to put you back $61,000.
2: That takes planning. That certainly does. And I I think that that's one of the most important things that we have to think about as financial planners is that what you want to do with your retirement, what your travel plans are is really specific to you. So start planning it really early and ahead of time. I have a couple of clients that I met with a, a few days ago who have been planning their 50th anniversary to go to Disney for three weeks, but they wanted to take their 16 kids and grandkids that is an expensive trip. So they've been planning this with me since we first started meeting together. They said, this is our goal. This is what we want to do on our 50th anniversary, and we're going to blow it out of the water. And they did. And they spent even more than they anticipated. But the bottom line is they planned ahead. We were talking about it. We were saving for it. We knew how we were going to pay for it. You know, we had that all kind of built in. And and I do think for most people in retirement, it's something that you really need to cushion. You need to say, this is my annual budget or my monthly budget. And and build in a little bit of a cushion. I highly recommend a travel fund. And that's a second account. Not your savings account, not your regular checking account, but a separate account that you're putting that money aside every month and/or or every year. Let's say you get a bonus from work and you're, you know, setting that aside into your travel fund. Because I personally feel like if I'm gonna go on a trip. I would have to steal that money from myself somewhere else. You know, I'd have to take it out of my savings or I'd have to take it out of retirement or I'd have to stop doing something else. Whereas if I was just saving it in that travel fund, I don't have that same guilt or that same fear that I'm derailing a different plan or a different agenda by doing that. So I am a big, you know, big advocate of having a separate travel fund and going ahead and committing that money to your annual travel. And again, it's all one big pot of money. So if you don't use it, you can, of course go back and use it for something else if you're not using it for travel. But at least if it's there, you've got the option.
1: You're listening to Everyday Wealth. Isabel Barrow and I are talking about traveling and even taking extended trips during retirement. When you're in retirement, Do you still have that travel fund or do you think about it in a different way? Do you start thinking about, is the money going to come out of my retirement account? And if it's coming out of my retirement account, is that going to have an impact on my retirement plans or my tax situation? I guess I'm asking how to structure it because I did what you said for my 50th birthday. I wanted to take my entire family, my kids, my husband's kids, my husband's son's then girlfriend, my parents. We all went to Hawaii, and it cost a lot of money, and I did not want to see those credit card bills. So I put money into a travel fund for a good year before we did it, just to make sure that the money was there. And that felt good emotionally. But once everything is in my retirement fund, because I'm retired, it seems like it might be different.
2: I think it starts with how you're saving and what type of an accountant, a personal finance accountant are you? How how do you track your budget? How do you track your expenses? I personally like the idea of having the account separate. And having the funds go into our, let's say, joint checking account to pay for the mortgage and all of our expenses and food, et cetera. And then having the separate travel fund that I know I have money set aside for every single year. So if I'm drawing out of my investment account for retirement and I need $5,000 a month for my essential expenses and maybe another $1,000 a month for discretionary, but I know I've got some big trips coming up, I might also be sending $1,000 a month to my travel fund. And yes, that's. That may mean that, you know, when you look at your entire budget now, your budget is seven thousand dollars instead of the five that you started with. But if you're talking to your financial planner early and often about that retirement goal, now we know, now I know your budget is not five thousand dollars a month, even though that's what you wrote down on the spreadsheet for me. You know, your budget says five thousand dollars a month. Oh, but I've got You know, other stuff that I want to do too. I like to go to concerts. I have hobbies. I play golf. I want to be able to travel. Now, I know as your advisor, I have to cushion that number. So, we are prepared to help you kind of formulate those ideas, but you kind of have to come in knowing, here are my priorities. And if it is a top priority, then it's my job as your financial planner. It's our job at Edelman Financial Engines to take a look at that budget and and try to help you figure out what's going to work best for you and your circumstances and how you spend and how you save and how you budget. And if you don't have somebody like Isabel that you talk
1: to, this is a really good reason to find somebody to just help you accomplish all of your goals in life. Retirement is a, is a big ball of wax and there are a lot of different things that you may want to do. So get some help. You can pick up the phone and call 833-PLAN-EFE or visit plan E-F-E dot com, But I think if you're exploring these issues, there are some other items on your checklist as well.
2: Yeah, you, you certainly need to talk to your doctors before you go and let them know where you're going. Because as I think many of us know, if you go to Africa, for example, in certain areas, you might need to get a malaria shot ahead of time. But there are other areas where there's other things that you might need to get you know, medication for and be prepared for in advance. So it's definitely talking to your doctors. It's looking into your medical insurance and how is that going to work if you're overseas? Because you may need to consider, especially if you're traveling for a long period of time, there may be some travel insurance with Mm -hmm. medical coverage that might make sense, especially if you have some pre-existing conditions. You're going to need to be prepared having all of your medications ordered in advance, talking to your doctor about, you know, getting those ahead of time and make sure you're bringing them with you. Thinking about, you know, just all of those kind of unexpected healthcare expenses that could arise. And another thing that I remind people of before they go on a trip is not just the healthcare expenses and all of the other things you need to plan for financially, but it's also a really good time to think about updating your legal documents. Because if you're traveling with everybody in your family who is your beneficiary and the plane goes down you know now what happens i mean of course not a scenario you really want to be thinking about but we never want to think about the the end you know the end of our lives and i think that when you're traveling especially on an extended trip it is really important to make sure that you've got all your documents and not just that you have the documents, but somebody at home knows where they are and knows how to get access to them. For example, it's not in a lockbox of the bank that once the bank's notified you're, you're deceased, that nobody can get into, right? That's not a good place to keep your will or your legal documents. So it's just having all of your ducks in a row as it relates to not just your money, but also your health and your legal stuff and your bills at home. Such
1: a good point, Isabel. Especially right now, the foundation of everything you're saying is not just having those legal documents, but making sure that you have the best health insurance plan for you. Let's switch gears now. Since early this year, we have just been watching the stock market roller coaster month after month after month. And although in recent weeks we've seen some positive movements, they do seem to be interspersed with those down days. Overall, the different indices are still down from their early January highs. But here's the thing about down markets that many people don't realize. They give you opportunities. There's this opportunity to buy stocks at lower prices, but there's also the opportunity to shave, but there's also the opportunity to have some of those losses work in your favor. The end of the year, December 31st, it'll be here before you know it. I can't believe it. And many of us are looking to cross some things off our list before the end of the year. Isabel, one of those things might be tax loss harvesting, which is a practice that I'm not sure many investors think about
2: as much as they should. Can you help us break it down? So listen, the official definition of tax loss harvesting is selling securities at a loss to offset the capital gains that are due on securities that you sold at a profit. Think about it this way. You have a taxable account, meaning a non-IRA account, also call them non-qualified accounts, but you have a taxable account with investments and you get to the end of the year and you've lost 20% in your investments and then you get hit with a tax bill on your dividends, on your trading, on your capital gains. And you're thinking, what the heck? I don't have any capital gains. I've lost 20%. But unless you are tax loss harvesting, you may actually end up paying taxes on your money in a year when you were down. So it's most often in a regular year, so not in a 2022 down year, but in a regular year, you might just use selling some things at a loss to help offset things that you sold at a gain. But in another year where the markets are primarily down more so than they're up, the IRS does say that if you're not using those capital losses to offset your capital gains, you can use $3,000 of it against your ordinary income, which is usually higher than 15%, which is the long-term capital gains rate for most. So if you're in a 25 or 30% tax bracket, now you're getting that $3,000 to offset your highest rung in that tax ladder which is a nice thing to do. And get granted, it's one very, very minor silver lining to taking losses. You're also able to use it in future years to carry forward those losses to offset stuff that happens later. If you expect the market to recover at some point, you can use these losses to offset those future gains that you have. Carry them forward until you've used them up. Are there some people who should do this and some people who shouldn't do it? I think who it's not good for is someone who is going to potentially sell out and cash out of the market all together. So you say, I'm going to take a capital loss. I'm going to tax loss harvest by selling. I'm going to stay out of the market for 30, 31 days. And the risk of that is, again, in some cases, that might be a good scenario for you. But in other cases, the risk is that you are, like I said, out of the market. So you need to talk to your advisor about whether or not that's the right plan for you. Um, I also think if you're in a really low tax bracket, you know, and or you already have Carry forward losses that you're taking from, let's say, a real estate sale in 2008 that you're still carrying forward a loss on, um, it may not be beneficial to just have more and more losses. But, you know, it, it's surprising that even if you don't have capital gains per se to offset, there are more specific cases where this might actually come in more handy than you think. I had a, I had a client um, recently who sold his business. And when he got paid out on that business, the mix of income that he took was some capital gain some interest, and then some ordinary income. And it was quite a bit of money from selling the business. He was very successful. And I was able to look at his taxable portfolio and say, okay, based on how much of this income is considered a capital gain from the sale of your business, I can offset some of that by selling only positions in your portfolio that are a loss and swapping them into similar but not identical funds How similar are the
1: funds allowed to be? If you sell one S&P 500 index fund and buy a different S&P 500 index fund, does that qualify or are you talking about here's a growth fund, here's a different growth
2: fund, maybe they hold slightly different things. They need to hold slightly different things. It cannot be an identical fund. So you might sell an S&P 500 fund and buy a Wilshire 5000 fund or something that is going to be maybe a broader market index. But you know, I think that you have to really be really careful in understanding what the rules are, understanding the pros and the cons, the advantages. And I would imagine if you got losses this year and look we all
1: have some losses this year this would make you feel better about the fact that you can be savvy about this you can be opportunistic about this you just may need some help in order to do it
2: correctly absolutely and you know like i said before our our planners get reports that show us our clients opportunities to tax loss harvest and in a normal year there's maybe not much need for that And the reason is that overall, our portfolios are tax efficient. So you can have a tax efficient portfolio, meaning overall, we're trying to minimize that long term and short term capital gain in any given years. Because at the end of the day, I like the saying, it's not what you make, it's what you keep. Yes. So it's tax, <laughs> tax efficiency matters, right? So in this case, you know, our portfolios are generally tax efficient. So there may not be a whole lot of need for that um in, a, in a, any given year, but certainly in a year when the markets are down, that's a year when you need to talk to your advisor, you need to talk to your planner, because all of this is really, really complicated and it can make a big difference in your taxes, meaning what you keep, not what you make. So if you're not talking to a planner, if your planner isn't talking to you about this this year... Maybe it's time for a new planner. Um, if you know if you're interested in what we're talking about here today and tax loss harvesting, tax efficient strategies, then by all means, give us a call, maybe we can help. 833 plan EFE or you can visit planefe.com. It's a great time to reach out to a planner to get help on this before the end of the year. Again, 833 plan EFE, that's our number, or you can visit us online at planEFE.com. Or if you have a question and you
1: want to talk to Isabel or one of her colleagues right here on the air, we're really open to doing that as well. If you visit us at everydaywealth.com and you say, hey, I got a question on tax loss harvesting or how to build a travel fund or any of the things that we've been talking about today or basically anything that's on your mind, submit your question. And together with an EFE Wealth Planner, we'll just talk through solutions that would be very personal to you. If you want to catch a show you might have missed, you can also always listen to the podcast. Sometimes the podcast will have an extended version of our show because we're time-constrained here on the radio. You can download that at everydaywealth.com or wherever you stream your favorite podcasts. Also, we love feedback. So when you download that podcast, leave us a review. Take a second and subscribe. That way you'll never miss an episode. Isabel, this was so much fun. Thanks for doing this today. It sure was. It's great to be back. Have a great week, everybody.
0: You've been listening to Edelman Financial Engine's Everyday Wealth with Soledad O'Brien, Gene Chatsky, and Isabel Barrow. Tune in each week for fresh and compelling insights and strategies to help elevate your financial potential. To learn more, visit our website, everydaywealth.com, or find our show wherever you stream your favorite podcast.